This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. Today's episode is going to look at the last of the great lumber barons of Muskegon, James Gow. While his name doesn't bring as much recognition as Hackley, Hume, or Torrent, James Gow ended the era of lumbering in Muskegon and is credited as operating the last sawmill on Muskegon Lake. James Gow's story starts like many others who are part of the lumbering industry. He was born on March 17, 1846 in Chippewa in the province of Ontario in Canada. He began his life working on a farm and in lumbering. Like many young men, he heard about the opportunities in Michigan's forest and mills and immigrated to the United States in 1862 with very little money in his pockets. His first job was at the Turnbull Mill cutting boards. There he moved up the chain and then would leave to work at the Ryerson Bay Mill located where Snug Harbor is today. From there, he was promoted to a position at the Ryerson City Mill before being promoted to the head of their lathe mill. He ran this mill for the next 12 years, saving up his money. With enough money in hand, Gao and several others bought a mill and created Gao, Majo, and Company, which was located in North Muskegon in 1881. That same year, cementing his place in society, he had a house built on Peck Street in Muskegon for the cost of $1,600. This was a pretty simple square house, that he would later replace with a house that was valued at about $20,000 on that same location on Peck Street. The Gow and Majo Mill cut lumber and maintained its success as well as any other sawmill on Muskegon Lake, continuing through the troubles of the late 1880s. In 1890, Majo sold his shares in the company and it became known as Gow and Campbell, which was the mill's name for the next several years. The mill had a capacity of around 75,000 board feet and cut 12 million board feet yearly. They had a focus on hemlock wood, which was used for paper pulp, but also for wood for the framing of doors and windows. This part of James Gow's story is like many other lumber barons. However, Gow got involved in the business right as things boomed in the early 1880s, but it also just begun when things started to slow down rapidly in the late 1880s. In 1894, Gow and Campbell purchased a large tract of land to keep the mill going, but the trees were thinning out rapidly and the tree stock was dwindling. In 1906, to try and keep his mill stocked with logs to cut, he formed the Log Lifting and Operating Company. This company bought up old sawmill marks, meaning that Gao was now the owner of any logs bearing those marks. Logs in the past were marked using a marking hammer, which indented a certain symbol, shape, number, or letters into it, proving the ownership of it. Think like a cattle brand out west. This company, soon found a large source of logs in areas where sawmills had once existed along Muskegon Lake shorelines. You see, sawmills at the time used the water to transport the logs and to also store the logs. Sawmills had a pen where the logs were floated and corralled while they waited to be lifted up into the sawmill and cut. Some of these logs became waterlogged and would sink down into the mud and muck. It was these logs that Gao targeted. He mentioned that you could peer down into the water and see the sunken logs just piled up below. The trick, though, was having the equipment to wench them up to the surface and then seeing if they still had any useful quality. 
Upon retrieval, it was discovered that indeed, these logs were mostly intact once the outer exposed layers were cut off. This source provided tons of wood for Gao to cut. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Upon advice from another lumber baron, John Torrent, Gao would continue to buy up every mill's log marks as they closed down, often tracking down distant family members who had little idea they owned a mark by inheritance. The log recovery operation soon expanded to traveling up the Muskegon River and recovering logs there as well. This, however, ran into some issues. Gao would end up having several legal battles with landowners along the river's banks. These landowners argued that any logs found by or on their property were theirs because they had been abandoned when they sank in the river during the log drive and were not immediately recovered. Gao, however, argued that he had the literal ownership mark on them and that the logs belonged to him. In 1908, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the logs belonged to Gao and that he had the rights to them due to the ownership of their marks. By 1913, Gao owned an estimated 96% of all log marks that had been used on the Muskegon River, and his mill ran five to six months out of the year with all the recovered logs being cut. This equated to about 4 million board feet yearly for Gao. In 1914, he owned 934 different log marks, making up about 99% of all the registered log marks that had existed in Muskegon. In 1913, the dam in Big Rapids broke, and the resulting flood of water scoured the bottom of the Muskegon River, uncovering untold numbers of logs that had been sunk and covered up over the years. Gao jumped on this huge opportunity and grabbed as many logs as he could. It is estimated that about 25% of the logs put in the Muskegon River during a log drive didn't actually make it to Muskegon. The number of board feet from this flood that was recovered was estimated to be about 600 million board feet of lumber. Gao's mill operating helped keep North Muskegon going. While it only employed about 40, it brought in taxes to the very small city. Gao's mill would be the last sawmill to operate on Muskegon Lake going until 1917 when James Gao died. The building then burned down in 1920. What I found very interesting about James Gao was that he stuck with lumbering until the very end. Most every other lumber baron had sold and moved away, but Gao managed to find enough of a market to sell his products, and with some creative thinking, found enough logs to keep his mill going, officially closing the chapter on the lumbering period in Muskegon. Like many other lumber barons, James Gao had more interest other than just lumbering, so I'd like to end our episode today talking briefly about his personal life. In 1874, Gao married a Julia Birch, an immigrant from England. The two would have two daughters, Evelyn and Edna. Evelyn would marry James Hoyt, a last name you might recognize from our street name episode. Gao was a member of the Chamber of Commerce and served on the Railroad and Boat Committee for that, overseeing these two transportation methods. He served as a member of the Grand Army of the Republic, an organization honoring Civil War veterans, and helped organize the Muskegon Rifles, Muskegon's Guard Unit. He also had a political career. In 1892, he ran and was elected as mayor of Muskegon. Gao ran on the Republican ticket and was noted as an honest businessman who was a hard worker and who would look after the city resources well. 
His opponents, however, said that Gao would never be around as his sawmills and business interests were all in North Muskegon, and that he wouldn't be able to represent Muskegon even though he lived in the city. Gao, for his part, replied that his business partners were the one on the ground in North Muskegon and not he. Gao would win the election with a good percent of the majority. His term in office passed from what I saw with no big scandals or no huge projects. It seems he kept the city chugging along. He also served as an alderman and a city treasurer during his lifetime. When not engaged in business or politics, Gao was also part of several clubs and was involved in the church. He was on the vestry for St. Paul's Church for 30 years and was a member of the Century Club and was a 33rd degree Mason. James Gao died on September 5, 1917 and was buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Muskegon. Those who were close to him described him as plain, unassuming, quiet, frank, cordial, but also very big-hearted. Thank you for listening to Muskegon History and Beyond as we look at James Gao and the end of an era from Muskegon.